0: It's not today's price what's up all you metrics freaks welcome back to another episode of the run the numbers podcast this is cj gustafson not really sure why i'm introducing myself again but uh i just got off a awesome pod with jenny decker the CFO at front. And it was a blast. We talked about a lot of cool things, but before we get there, I want you to smash that five-star rating on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And I am told by producer Nancy, I haven't even found this feature yet, but there is a way to submit a question on there. So you can tell me, uh, you know, how lame I am, why you think the rule of 40 is cool. You can ask anything really questions, comments, insults, throw them in. We'll take anything. Before we get into this old episode, I want to go off the books with the male bag of burritos here. And so first question I got here from Matt Shunny, Shunny, Matt Shunny. Okay. He said, hello, CJ. Uh, Love the pod. I like that you called gross margin, the dark arts Uh, that resonates question. Why don't you put attrition slash vacancy assumptions in your headcount budget? Is that right? Was trying to figure this out. I'm in annual planning season. Happy annual planning season, Matthew. I do not include attrition in my headcount budget because I like to treat it as a tailwind. There are going to be a lot of things that are unexpected and potentially go wrong uh, next year in your budget. And you want to have a little bit of wiggle room. And with people cost being 70% of everything that you pay for, it's good to give yourself a little bit of freedom uh, for when people actually drop out of the workforce. So think about it like you're going to have some people who are going to come in at more expensive than what they cost. You're going to have some people who end up actually turning to two people because you end up uh, splitting up the roles and responsibilities differently. And... Potentially a real reason why you do it is because it's impossible to predict who's going to quit, okay? Uh, I've anecdotally seen a lot of people, like if I was trying to plan for attrition, they usually quit after an annual bonus or quarterly bonus is paid out or a large commission check. And so like if you're a software company that has MBOs, management by objectives, I remember like I would have a bunch of basically emails coming in at the end of each quarter, like right after we paid it out of people who are just sticking around to get that payout. That's when the majority of attrition happens. I would say almost 80%. And you split attrition, by the way, into two buckets. You have regrettable and non-regrettable and voluntary and involuntary. So I guess it's really, there's like a one a and one B or a old drop down on uh, attrition there, but I do not put attrition in my budget because you can't predict it. And you know, There are a lot of things that are not going to go planned. Don't put this on yourself as well. Um, And it's going to be really hard to track period to period of if you hit your attrition budget, that's a weird one to try to hit. Um, I've never done that. So I would say, do yourself a favor, do not plan for it and take any cost savings you can get. The next question that we had here from a lovely reader CJ, really good content. I wish they said great. Like the analysis around subscription versus usage-based pricing. You are so nice. You made a brief mention about hybrid pricing, but how do you feel about that approach overall? Felt like we were able to get the best of both worlds in a previous job where we sold access to the platform for predictability and buy-in on the solution, but then had a usage component to better monetize usage and customer value and provide net dollar retention upside. HubSpot is a good example. What do you think of this? Well, I've actually thought a frightening amount about this. So usage-based pricing, it's been around for centuries. I mean, it's what you do when you go in a taxi, in Uber. Uh, it's your electric bill, and it's made a quite the rise in uh, traditional software models, taking the place of a lot of subscription uh based monetization methods. And the reason is because it better aligns in many scenarios to the direct value proposition of what you're providing the customer. So it's intimately close to whatever problem you're solving. And so you're both incented uh, to increase that usage over time. Subscription, you know, is somewhat aligned to that. So like, I'll give you an example, like Salesforce is aligned to the person using it or to the the seat and sometimes the actual storage underneath it, um, which I guess would be a hybrid pricing model, but it's just not as close because it's not like every day you're checking like, how is my Salesforce license count fluctuating? You you prepay for an amount and and you kind of stick to that. And there can be a lot of waste when it comes to a classic subscription license, whereas usage, um it it goes up or down and it's very transparent as to what you're using and you know something you you may like about subscription pricing it is easy to forecast it is easy to understand and it's harder to churn usage you can churn in period just by like stop using it and i think that's why a lot of people have gone to this hybrid model because it takes the best of both worlds where you have somewhat of like this known quantity um, of what you will get in period and then if they want to go above and beyond what they've already bought into um, so say it's like hey I'll buy up to a block of 100 you know email checks if it's like a, a an email tool or an Apollo IO or something like that and then if I want to go above it in excess then the usage kicks in and that's nice because it, it's still easy to predict predict you know your base level of revenue but then you're not capping your upside and that's a beauty of usage based models where like you can get in low and you're and you're basically you have a a higher or larger surface area for good things to happen you can have customers that you didn't think were going to be big just completely take off and blow the doors off your expectations. And that'll play out in what, what the lovely reader slash listener was asking about um, net dollar retention. I mean, it's kind of like a video game cheat code where these customers start at this lower level. And any growth you get is going to fall into that expansion bucket. And for all you m- metric storks out there, you know, in terms of how you calculate it, that expansion makes your net dollar retention go up over time. Um, and so hybrid best of both worlds, I think, uh, when I wrote about it in my post, I was intentionally kind of vague about using both because we don't live in this binary world where it's just one or the other. I do think hybrid is a good approach. What you do have to be careful though, is about confusing your customer. So like, this is the only thing I want to leave you with is if you do a hybrid approach, it makes it a lot harder to explain what you're charging somebody for. Like as a CFO, I've sat down with a bill before and I've been like, what the f- what am I paying for here? Like I, I, It's all smoke and mirrors of what's going on. So if you do it, that's fine. But like, make it very clear and simple to understand that, hey, you get this for your base subscription, anything above that, it's going to be excess and it's going to be linked to this metric and it equates to this dollar amount. So be aware. Thanks for tuning in to the mailbag and going off the books with me. Now let's get to the interview. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I am here with Jenny Decker, the CFO of Front.
1: Jenny, thanks so much for coming on. So happy to be here. Very excited to be on this podcast. I love that you're doing this for CFOs, something I wish I had when I was starting.
0: And so we're going to talk a lot about CFO stuff. But before we get into that, I was doing some research. So you have a dog named Winston. Is that right?
1: I do. He actually grew up at Atlassian with me.
0: I am such a fan of people who give their dogs people names. My my dog's name is Walter.
1: Mine's named after Winston Churchill. So
0: weird fact about me, I had a cactus all through college, and his name was Winston Churchill. I used to name my plants after political figures.
1: Sounds like big, we have a lot big in fan.
0: So I have to admit, my wife helped me a lot with the research for this podcast because she is a power user a front. I am an inbox is zero zealot, but I don't use the product yet, but she uses it every day in her role uh, as a marketer. So, you know, some of these questions, shout out Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you for the research ahead of time. Jenny, I wanted to ask you, so you've been at front for about five years now. I want to go back to, you know, the first three months on the job, maybe what was going through your head in the CFO role? What was keeping you up at night?
1: I think I'll answer that a couple of different ways. So first, I think just from a like a personal standpoint, uh, I think when you're a first-time CFO, you're reporting to someone who's not a CFO, and that that's a big change, right? When you grow up in other functions like accounting or legal or FP&A, you report to someone who's a subject matter expert, uh, and so it was a big change for me to adjust. How I communicated with the CEO because she's not a CFO, and so having to cater to someone who's not a subject matter expert, but you know they have tremendous expertise elsewhere that I don't, uh, etc. So that was that was one thing that I think first few months in the job I was really adjusting to. The second one, uh, back to the more personal, is it's just I think it was there's a little bit of uh, okay is this decision mine? Is anyone going to check my decision? Yeah. Uh, you know, because you could rise it up the ranks when you were at a larger company and ultimately the call was the E-team or exec team or CFO or somebody else. Um, and it wasn't always your call. And and here, like, it is your call. You have to live with it and and feel the consequences and the impact. And I think just really getting used to that uh, was something that kept me up for the first three months.
0: Yeah, I remember the same feeling of like, is anyone going to check my work on this? And that was kind of scary at first. And I kind of have a theory that execs get paid what they get paid because they're willing to make decisions right, wrong or indifferent. And at the end of the day, you need someone to to pull the trigger and say, we should do this or do that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's why, you know, as I've told people, as they rise their careers, it's fast. It's quick to rise from a very junior level to the next level, you can do it in 12 months to 24 months. But the higher you get, a, the, longer, the, harder it, uh, the longer and harder it takes. It's because of these decisions. It's the risk that you're taking and therefore the impact that you're having and living with the consequences. The higher up you go comes pros and cons. You, it comes with compensation and title, but it also comes with incredible risk. Uh, so it's it's fun.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Are there any frameworks that you use to decide when you should be the one making the decision or when to go to the CEO?
1: I think one of the frameworks that we use internally, it's a great question. I think everybody struggles with this. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's the RACI-DACI model. Mm. Um, specifically, let's take DACI, D-A-C-I. So D is the driver, A is the approver, C you know, are the contributors, and I are an informed. Uh We don't try to do this on a day-to-day. If I'm asking you to do something very simple like, run a model like we don't need to do the dacy on it but if we're if we're talking about who's making the final call on our CRO's variable compensation model, I'll quickly do a pulse check with our CEO being like, hey Daisy check, am I the approver or you're the approver? etc. Do you want to be the I or the A, et cetera? And so it's it's helpful. And I've sat down with our CRO, you know, when the CRO has started and is being like, let's just do a quick racy day check because we come from different backgrounds, different companies. And then what we do is we call clean escalate. If we can't agree to something um with earnest in trying to resolve it between the two of us in a couple of days, then we'll clean escalate to the CEO. Um, and so it's a framework that has helped us. You don't call it in every situation. You call it in the really big situations. But just saying, hey, let's do a quick daisy on this and we can identify roles.
0: I love this. Just to go uh, you know, nerd out on this for a sec. Do you need, because I've tried to incorporate frameworks before and I've had some people be like, nah, man, we don't really do it that way. Or, you know, I, I think the way we're doing it, it's fine. Do you need the CEO to say, hey, I want everybody to use this framework and and buy into it going forward? How did it become part of your culture and nomenclature?
1: So there are some things that um, we have found that once you introduce it company-wide, it just becomes part of your culture and ethos. And I can try to bring up a couple. This is one that we did roll out company-wide. We did the company all hands-on. And it was all in the spirit of let's get... uh, I'm going to swear in your podcast. Let's get shit done faster. And this isn't trying to put people in boxes. It's really sometimes if you have unclear roles and responsibilities, it's just going to slow you down. And so let's call a daisy or a racy. And so we introduced it at the company wide. We introduced it to our managers. We we really encouraged it um, as part of teams and. We, that's typically how things are done. Or sometimes it happens, or I'm using another example, organically and we lo- we find that we love it or we see pockets of success. So we at Front do what we call a monthly one-on-one. And it's i it's, I'll, I'll tell you, it's the same five questions that I use everywhere. It's what's making you happy this month? What's making you unhappy this month? What are you working on that you think you shouldn't? What are you not working on that you think you should? And then how can I make professional life better? It's the same five questions every month. And we found that the teams that did it were much more successful than the ones who did not And so we rolled it throughout other managers uh, and then rolled it out company-wide. And now it's just part of our culture. And we love it. And a lot of people who you know come in and out of front um, will take it with them to their new work- workplaces.
0: That's incredible. And so all the employees will fill this out. It's not just managers, you're saying?
1: Oh, absolutely. I do it with all of my directs. And I also do it with my manager, Matil, who's the CEO and founder.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now that we're on frameworks for communicating and making decisions, I heard a story about um, the CTO at HubSpot, Darmesh, and apparently, and I'm going to totally butcher this, but when he posts something in Slack, he'll he'll say it's essentially like, "Hey, for your information," and he'll have a tag on it, or he'll say, "This is something I'm thinking about," which means like you should consider it. But if you don't think it's a good idea, you should give me like a well reasoned idea back. There's no mystery around what his message meant or or what you should do in terms of picking it up or putting it down.
1: I love that. I hadn't heard that, but it's it I love it because I think the more senior you get and the further away people get from that a, there's a possibility of, of misinterpretation, but also not knowing like how open they are to change or how much to debate. And I tell my directs this, tell me if this work is 20% done or 80% done, because I'll cater my feedback accordingly. If it's 20% done, let's talk about the high level. If it's 80% done, I'm going to get into it. And so it's very, very similar to that. And I love it. We have a similar, which is, this is to inform This is for discussion. This one, I need you to action. But I I love that he's really introduced that uh, in Slack. The ones we use are for agenda topics.
0: Sometimes I feel like at big companies with codes, it's like, well, if we put everybody's name on the page together, we'll fail together. And it can't all kind of point back to me.
1: Yes. Yes. Which is why we typically try to assign one owner to have high bars of accountability here.
0: Yeah. But I I love your ideas around decision making and and how you frame up when to take the ball and shoot it or, or pass it. So thanks for that. As you've matured in your role as a CFO, you've got more confidence under you. You've understood the business model well. You've contributed to how the business model has formed. What kind of changes in terms of what kept you up at night to start with versus now?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go back to my first three months as a CFO. I definitely think with time in the seat, you just become a lot more comfortable. I'm sure you relate. You know, how to work your CEO, um, where to find data inside the company, uh, and then also just living with the impact of your decision, like that, mm-hmm. that no longer keeps me up. Like it just wears on as you gain more experience. And I think that's the incredible part about being a CFO. But the business challenges are different uh, in terms of what kept me up. Absolutely right. They're hiring and and keeping pace with the breadth of hiring or the velocity of hiring previously, making sure people were onboarding and really maintaining our culture was something that was really critical at the beginning. But you know, as we as we are growing into the size of the team that we have and the ones we've hired previously and then also just in this macro environment, it's no longer what's keeping me up. Another way to think about it is at the beginning, it was all about growth. And right now it's all about efficiency that's keeping yep. me up. Uh, so it changes as um, the business evolves, gets bigger, but it also just changes based off of macro, et cetera.
0: Do you think that flexibility to change what the priorities are, quote unquote, what the worries or what's keeping you up at night is a quality that separates the good CFOs from the great CFOs?
1: Yes, I think you can definitely separate it. Like I think for me, great CFOs are ones that can be strategic but also know how to operate. And good CFOs, I think they will tend to be more, more in the business as opposed to being in the business and on the business, working on mm. the business. There are gonna be things that keep you up at night when you're working in the business and as part of operating and how to remove blockers and move this project forward, but also just strategic things of, okay, like how are we gonna continue growing X percentage in the next few years? Do we need to enter new markets, use cases? Do we need to release a new product, et cetera? So the short answer is yes, I think what keeps you up at night can distinguish a great CFO and a good CFO, Mainly because the things that are keeping you up at night, if it's strategic, you're probably in the camp of great CFO. That's a backward answer to your question. No, that was great. And
0: to zoom in on being strategic, someone had described it to me as changing the altitude that you fly at. So as a CFO, you need to be able to fly 40,000 feet above and see long term of what's going to happen in the business, but also be able to zoom down into the operational level to get into the weeds of, of what's, you know coming around the corner or what's going on day to day. Something that I struggle with in my mind, and I'm curious to get your point of view on is how visible to be as a CFO out in the business. Do you ever think about that? Because a lot of people think CFOs are kind of behind a closed door operating like almost like there's this Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. How do you think about being visible within and out in the business as a CFO?
1: So great question. Let me let me comment a couple different ways. So I couldn't agree more. I call it playing eagle and then playing mouse. You have, Ooh, to, that's be, a good one. You have to be an eagle because you are the only one with that bird's eye view of the company. Um, it's particularly that's numbers driven and data driven, but then you also have to be a mouse. Like I never like asking my directs to do something that, well, it's not always true, but to do something I don't implicitly understand how long, how complicated, etc. And so you also have to, play mouse and help break down their blockers and really just tackle some of the, the issues you run at internally. In terms of not being the wizard of Oz and being behind a curtain, I think it's important on several layers. Like When you're working on the business, I do think it's very important that it's you and the CEO who are really jointly owning the relationships with investors and your board. In essence, you're the face of the company uh, right. alongside right. your CEO. So, definitely not behind the curtain there. And then when you're working inside the business, I, I do think it's important for the company to understand your point of view, your philosophy as CFO, how you view the business. Um, and so, for example, we do a monthly post of the business to the entire company. We do it at our all hands. And it's I think it's important for employees to see you and making sure you're not behind the curtain, And but really to understand that your point of view is so much more than you know, approving expenses or being a naysayer, um, but that you are thinking about where we're headed in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, et cetera.
0: I love how you use the once a month company meetings to kind of get out in front of the company because I think where people sometimes get nervous at, especially in odd macroeconomic environments is when they don't hear anything because then you start to make up kind of stories in your head of what may or may not be going on.
1: It's so true. We operate with high transparency at front, um, with the caveat that if our trust is broken, we'll we'll start to pull back information, but we operate with incredibly high transparency, and we think it's better than the stories you make up. Yeah. One of the questions I sometimes get from new employees is like, what are you thinking about that you haven't shared with the company? And for me, um, I, I understand where the root of cause of that question is that other companies, like, what are you not saying to the entire company? But at front, what we say to the company is what's keeping us up. And so we try to be very transparent and that there's nothing else to share because we already shared it.
0: And being transparent, do you think the skill of storytelling becomes even more important as a CFO?
1: I think if you were to ask me what is the most important skill to have as a CFO, it's... top three of most important skills, I would say storytelling is absolutely in that list. And if I were to hazard what the other two are, it's probably influencing cross-functionally and then hiring. I can name many others, but like I think that's an incredible list. Three.
0: Yeah. Storytelling is something that my eyes were open to first time in the role. It's like I'm selling employees on joining the company. I'm selling investors on investing. And then I'm selling our Financial story in general to existing investors, to but make not them. only
1: that, you're selling. Uh, you often have to get buy-in from your executive team or your le- mm-hmm. leadership team, even if you know it's the right answer. You have to slow down and get their buy-in, or it's going to slow you down in the future if they're if they don't believe that that's the right path for them. I mean, that can be storytelling, that can be influencing. It matters.
0: And to drill into the second one, influencing cross-functionally. So CFO has a lot of power to say no to things. How do you work with your colleagues to foster that relationship of working together and not being, you know, the person who just says yes or no? How do you work on that influence or wield that influence in like a positive manner?
1: I think context matters, relationships matter, but also time frame matters. What I mean by that is usually something that comes to me will be pretty short term, such as I need to hire this role that wasn't in our plan. Um, yeah, all the time. That as an example. <laughs> That's an That's always the one. <laughs> <laughs> and... Then I will say, well, let's pin that for a minute. I understand that's the short term ask, but like, where are you trying to go long term with your organization? And usually, that you know, that will bring out, I need to grow this function, or I I recognize I've probably scaled beyond this team and leader, and so this is a higher head as we transition. Either way, it's usually if you can align on the long term and you agree on the long term of where you're headed, you can probably come to an agreement on what the medium term and short term looks like. Like uh, Now I understand why this head came out of nowhere because you can agree on the why and maybe the how is a little bit different. And that's when you can really drill down on whether that's the right how uh, of how you would, and whether you would expend the resources there.
0: And I think asking those questions has a level of empathy that you're showing too. It's like, hey, I wanna understand the story of why you need this, that it's not just like a today thing. What's the long-term vision here?
1: Absolutely. Once you have that as a foundation, it will serve you in many, many different contexts and conversations because the more you understand about their organization, the deeper the, you know, contextual knowledge you'll have about all of their future asks or where they're headed and how you can help be a better partner and help them get there faster.
0: And one of the other, you know, qualities you brought up for a great CFO is the ability to hire well. What percentage of your week If you were to look at your calendar, do you think is around interviews, whether it be for your department or another one?
1: I would say um, it's a pretty high percentage from the close of other departments to other execs. And even if it's not interviewing to doing references, it's all relates to hiring. And even if I'm not hiring, one thing that I have found in my role is you need to be warming up candidates in the background. Um, and, And even if they're not looking like, for example, one of my best hires, I pinged him every quarter for six quarters before he agreed to join front. For a year and, um, and a half, you
0: pinged him every quarter.
1: I pinged him every quarter just to check in to see yeah. if he was if his career was progressing as he wanted to at his current company. Um, and some quarters was like, Great, great to hear from you. Nothing here, nothing new to report. And then in the sixth quarter, he was like, Do you want to jump on a call? And I said, Yes, I would love to jump on a call. Got him. And he got him. <laughs> Um, so that was probably my best hire today. Uh, and it took effort. So even if you're not hiring, expending the time thinking about where my company is scaling and what type of controller or head of legal or GC, et cetera, that you need for that scale of company, it's worth the work.
0: It is. And you know, the best people out there are probably doing cool stuff right now too. It's not like they're just sitting around waiting to get plucked up.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you just, if you build the relationship or constantly in the back of their mind. It's oftentimes, you know, serendipitous if you hit them at the right moment and if they're thinking about leaving a company, but odds are you're not going to hit that window. So if you maintain that relationship and they will reach out to you when they are thinking, um, it matters.
0: And more specifically on hiring, if I have it right, I think your leadership team is 50% women. How do you think about hiring for diversity?
1: We value diversity incredibly, and I think we're incredibly proud to have a female CEO, female CFO, mm-hmm. um, in addition to other female leaders at our company. One thing that we did institute for leadership roles is what we call the Rooney Rule. and so That's from football, right? It is from football. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, from NFL coaches. Effectively a person of diverse background, and it was specific to the team. So, for example, on my team, female doesn't count as underrepresented because actually I have more females on my team than I do males, and so that wouldn't count. But, for example, on our engineering team, female does count as underrepresented. And so it's very team-specific. But for a certain level basically directors and up, what we said was, hey, you need to have a certain number of candidates make it to a certain level before you can make a decision, it doesn't matter what the I mean highest, obviously highest qualified candidate wins, but you still it's it's all about making sure that enough candidates are considered at a certain level. and then exceptions had to go up to the CEO. like that's how much buy-in there was because there were just weren't that many director, senior director plus hires. And so all exceptions did have to go up to the CEO, yeah,
0: and I, I guess it's preferential attachment in the sense that, if you're only mining from your network and the majority of people from your network are male in that specific role, you're going to keep going to what's the easiest path of resistance to hire a a good candidate.
1: Absolutely. And eventually it got to a point where, where folks were like, okay, the thing that will, that may slow me down as they think about hiring is, hey, I need certain number of candidates at this stage. Um, And so they reached like, further out into their networks or they really worked with the recruiters to start that pipeline really early just to make sure that they were seeing the velocity um, and then factoring into their needs and time to hire.
0: Something that the CFO has a big hand in is the maternity leave for fathers and mothers. I'm trying to actually work with my head of HR to craft our policy now. We were just kind of going state by state and we needed to mature that How do you think about those types of policies if you put on kind of your hat as, you know, the CFO, but also as someone who wants to value diversity?
1: It's a great question. It's actually something that I care very deeply about, um, having just come back from parental leave. I think the thing that matters to me most is actually not the length of maternity Mm -hmm. leave. I think it's the length and practice of paternity leave. And let me be clear about this. Even if I set maternity leave at, and I'll use the one that's front, at 18 weeks up front, no matter what I set paternity leave to be, it, it should be very close to or equal to maternity leave. The exception being like, I do think it there is a big difference for, for giving birth. We do need birthing recovery. Even if you were an adopting mother, I think I would set it as equal to paternity just to draw out that distinction. But it's not just the amount of time you give, it's it's making sure people actually live and can set an example and take it. If you have a generous paternity leave, but nobody takes it, it actually is not in service of any mother. You need to be able to show and demonstrate that you can take a pause, have a child and come back, ramp back in and still continue to rise in your career. So yeah. uh, my focus almost generally speaking it's not the number of weeks of maternity leave it's what's the length of paternity leave and how many men are actually taking it
0: so i have a child due in three months now my second kid as cfo do you think i should therefore take the full leave because that scares the living crap out of me of leaving the company for that long
1: i think you should absolutely do what's right for your family and i think you should absolutely do what's right for the company but I do generally think you should take your full leave, whether that's in chunks or altogether, I would defer to the situation. Uh, You'll know it better than I would, but I do think you should lead by example and take your
0: It's something I wrestle with because I'm like, I think I should lead by example. It's like unlimited vacation. Nobody ever takes it because there's this pressure that you feel like people are watching. But at the same time as a CFO, I feel like I'm sure it wouldn't happen, but that if I leave the house is gonna burn down or something.
1: I mean, rightly or wrongly, just to give ourselves perspective, our lives are not at stake here. Um, I yeah. do think you, you, I think you can leave. But more important than that, um, jokes aside, I do think it's a chance for you to understand which of your team members can step up and will step up, and so view it as an accelerant to. I love how you tease that out. That's
0: definitely a positive.
1: Sussing out your directs and giving them the opportunity to rise. But then the other way I thought about it was one of the things that every CFO struggles with is how much time to allocate to playing eagle and mouse. And nobody, nobody ever says they play enough time playing eagle. And so one of the strategies I had is try to offload as much as I possibly can to all of my directs while I was going parental lead. And in fact, when I come back, be incredibly disturbing on what I take back. In fact, I would rather them keep it
0: do you think your life is easier actually since you've come back because you kind of had a test period to offload some stuff
1: i it's it's a good question i think the ramp back in was incredibly hard so yeah um, kudos to all parents who do ramp back in one but now that i am fully ramped back in i would say in some ways easier because i think i am able to tell one i did um, i'm discerning about what i took back and and they took and they ran with it and i'm like please keep it but two I think I I have a better sense of who can rise when I'm gone yeah. out of the business and where I may need to spend more time.
0: I love that. I love that. To transition and actually go back in time a little bit, I wanted to take a look at your path to CFO. And so you were on this traditional banking to private equity path. Then you jumped over to the dark side, like myself, to become an operator where I think it's more fun. And more specifically an FPNA partner, when you were looking to make that jump, what what catalyzed that?
1: You know, um, I love talking about this. I mean, we I'm sure we can have lots to discuss over a beer or wine at some point, but mm-hmm. when I made the jump, it was because I wanted to become and I'm using air quotes here, a better investor. I wanted operational experience to become okay. a better investor. I really wanted to understand, you know, the blockers, the CEOs, CFOs, execs, the people you advise in boardrooms, the blockers that they run into and you know what it actually feels like operating a company. And so I said, let me go get some operational experience. It will make me a better investor. And then jump back. So I may have had different catalysts, but like you, I love it. And, and I, until yeah. I run my whole career arc here, which is, should be 95% of my career, I'm not going back. I'm here for good. So what I love about it is having impact and, and really being part of the same team and, and seeing the consequences and the impact of your decisions and work. You don't just fly in, advise and fly back out. You make decisions, you execute it, you live with the consequences, you make more decisions, et cetera.
0: And it seems like you took that to heart because, I mean, looking at your resume, just so listeners know, I mean, you flew up the ranks. You you made it really far, you know, from being on the investor side all the way to CFO in about six years' time. Do you think that there were any qualities or characteristics that you had before coming CFO that helped accelerate that curve?
1: Um, A few. A few. Again, let me answer that a couple different with a couple of different things. So one, I did do it rapidly. But for you who's quite familiar, remember, I worked traditional finance hours for the first five plus years of my career, yeah. which when you're working 80 plus hours a week, that's basically 10 years of experience in, in your first five. Totally. Um, and so while if you're looking traditional years, that is true. Remember the experience you get when you're going through your traditional finance background is immense. So that's one. Two, I do think being an investor really gave you the bird's eye view and, and gave you a ton of experience. People say like there's such different jobs, but at the end of the day, you have scarce resources as an investor. You know, you're taking dollars and investing them in companies. You're taking scarce resources, dollars, people, time at a company, and you're investing them behind products, PL departments, et cetera, projects. And so it's a very similar skill set in some ways. And so that's, that's a one number of years. Two, And then three, I think the thing that people, you know, often ask me when I make this transition is like, were you scared when you made the transition? Did you, were there moments of fear? And for those who are recovering finance people, uh, I think the thing that held me back most from making that decision was I was going to enter a job with a lower title, lower compensation, having lower impact because you're more junior. And then also this fear of lower quality of talent around you. Almost all of that wasn't true. So lower impact and lower quality of talent, uh, lower title, lower compensation for sure. But I I think what people fail to remember is careers are exceedingly long. And I think experience matters. Um, the company you go to matters. And your title and your compensation will catch up to you as long as you're indexing on the right things. And for me, it was experienced manager as opposed to title compensation throughout.
0: And I want to stay on that for a second, because I felt like when I made the transition over from private equity to an operator role, I almost felt like I was trading down in a status game that I was playing, which was so stupid at the time. I felt like I could tell people I worked in private equity and it was so cool and it had this cachet. And I almost like hate myself for thinking that. And I think I was like a, and I'm not saying you were by any means, I bet you were an all-star, but I was definitely like a B private equity person, maybe B minus, but I could be an A, A minus operator. And I was also happier moving over and having more fun with the people I worked with. Did you have similar, you know, back and forths in your mind around like, am I playing a status game here? Am I doing like, what's the best thing for Jenny long term?
1: Oh, I have very, very, very similar experience, which is again you are taking a, a step back from comp and title wise and and I will say my first few years after exiting private equity the assumption can be you failed at private equity yeah um, that's what
0: I that's what I was really afraid of people thinking
1: and or you just couldn't cut the hours and you chose a lifestyle job and it it's funny because you're on this trajectory and for I will say there's a black box of time. Um, and I, I actually call it my pre-IPO Atlassian years because quite frankly, nobody knew what Atlassian was and how they were growing. And they were like, I don't understand her career trajectory. And then when Atlassian went public, and then even more when I became CEO of Front, people were like, whoa, she made some of the best decisions of her career when I would say there were many years where, you know, folks in your network don't quite understand your career trajectory. So again, this is why don't optimize for the year. Don't optimize for the title, the compensation. Optimize across your career and you'll come, I think you'll come out where you want yourself to.
0: That's such good advice. Don't optimize for the title and the career in the moment. Take a longer term view to it. Absolutely. That resonates with me a lot. And in retrospect, you do look like a genius. Because I think about careers in some ways is you're kind of building a startup and you're the CEO of yourself. And you kind of look like an overnight success when you look at your resume, but there probably were times along the way where you're like, shit, what am I doing? Like, did I make the right choice? I got off like, and, you know, being in private equity isn't a sure path by any means, but it has that status, that cachet and the high dollars that, you know, people associate with it.
1: The advice I love telling people who are younger than myself is you write your story, in hindsight, and you write your story backwards. It is so easy for me to tell you my story now, which is first I was a generous investor and then I went into tech to specialize and then I jumped into tech to be an operator. And then I went through a rapidly growing company and then I jumped into a smaller company, be CFO. I can tell you at each of those jump off points, I had no idea if this story would actually become a story. And I certainly did not plan it from day one, but the story makes a ton of sense in hindsight. It and does. So just trust yourself that you'll be able to write your story backwards.
0: Trust yourself to write the book as it goes.
1: <laughs> absolutely. And yes, I love your analogy of CEO too, because the other thing that I also tell anyone who is in my organization up front is you are the CEO of your career. Like it's on us to absolutely give you opportunity at front. But at the same time, like you need to be the one who brings up what you want to do, where you want to grow, what skills you want to augment, and be the CEO of that. And so I think all of that resonates with me.
0: The uh, commencement speech from undergraduate business school at BC, I remember the dean gave this long talk about you have to be the CEO of you. And like, I was pretty hungover at the time. So I didn't like fully understand what he was saying. But I was like, what is this guy talking about CEO? Like, I'm going to work for PwC, I'm going to go work for this company, great brand name. And like, the older I've gotten, the more I've been like, damn, that guy was spot on. I'm the CEO of me. Like I'm my own business and writing my own book as if I'm kind of a startup along the way.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think about it in terms of career development. I think that's true for employees in terms of well-being. Like front can can offer all the benefits in the world for, you know, wellness days and mental health resources, et cetera. But you're the CEO of your own self too. Like for well-being to be important, you need to own that too. So it's yes. it's it's both. Cool.
0: Love it. So moving into what we like to call our long ass lightning round, I wanted to ask, can you give us an example of something you've screwed up on the job in your career, either here or elsewhere?
1: I think um, hiring is one. I've mishired. And just being able to quickly recognize when you've mishired and quickly make changes is going to be the difference between good and great because your team needs to augment you. So that's one. Two, storytelling. I think early on, I thought storytelling was oversharing all the facts. Like I wasn't hiding anything over here, but I think the best storytellers are the ones who look at all the data and are well-versed in all the data. And if you challenge me, I, I know the data, but it's crafting up the salient points where you don't just regurgitate all the data. It's like, okay, I looked at it all. I know it all, but here are the things that you need to know. And so those are some of the, the mistakes that I've screwed up, certainly. As With I,
0: hiring, I got a question. Is the mistake yes. the hire or is the mistake not making the change fast enough?
1: Oh, it was both. Both are so important.
0: Is one worse than the other?
1: Yes. I think the worst is letting it linger and being too scared to make that decision. Yeah, Inevitably, you'll miss hire.
0: Yeah. But if you, no one bats if a you thousand. aren't
1: quick to make the change, you're going to hurt yourself and the company so much more.
0: Gotcha. Next one here. Can you walk me through your finance software stack? Can you tell me what you're working with today?
1: Oh, happy to. I joke with people, systems are probably the part that you have to work inside the company to really understand systems because, like, PE doesn't understand finance. They invest so in
0: tools sometimes that they've never even used.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, Actually, the majority of the time. <laughs> until you're, like, signed in and live and understand, like, what's not integrating and how painful yeah. it is to get information from Salesforce to NetSuite, it's, I mean, you haven't lived. Yeah. Okay. So my finance stack, I'll just ramble off a few. Uh, we have NetSuite as our ERP system. Shout out
0: NetSuite. Big fan of NetSuite.
1: Big fan of NetSuite. You know, they do all the things for us, RevRec, et cetera. We have Tapulti, Bill.com, Airbase. We also have, for commissions, we have Captivate. For FPA, we have Pigment. Pigment, uh, for okay. For casting purposes. We run our billing through Stripe. And so we also use their tax software within Stripe.
0: That's a strong stack. I mean, that's a really mature, you know, series of tools you get there. What's the most recent tool you bought?
1: The most recent tool we bought was Pigment. So I grew up on tools like Adaptive and Anaplan, although there's this whole new generation of FP&A tools as well, but really wanted to give ownership to my FP&A team and they came back and they said they wanted to run with Pigment and they've been super happy with Pigment. So that's probably been our most recent add because you don't add that until you have a a team of a certain scale. One thing I have learned from operating at, at scale is in some ways, like it's not true. I mean, you can bring on tools too early, but the tendency is to bring on tools too late. And so we do have... I would say a stack that is a little bit more robust than you would maybe see at other companies of our size. But I th- I know we will grow with them as we grow.
0: And last question for you, what's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense?
1: Um, unless it's like a true trip that you like could not foresee and we asked you to get on a plane tonight, which almost never happens up front. I've seen people uh, expense dog-sitting for a couple weeks' time. Um, It doesn't feel like an expense that the company should bear.
0: That's good. What? I'll turn it back to
1: you. What's the craziest one you've seen?
0: The craziest one I had ever seen was Super Bowl tickets. But the funniest one was somebody um, didn't go to conferences often and they expensed a pair of, quote-unquote, dress jeans so they could look good. I was like, (laughs) no, no, man. You pay for your own jeans around here.
1: I love that. I love it.
0: All right, Jenny, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Big fan of what you're building at front and really appreciate, you know, you carving out time and being so honest with us.
1: Absolutely. Well, was a pleasure. And I uh, thank you so much for hosting all of these podcasts. I mean, I think every CFO just wants to pay it forward to everyone who made them. Actually, one of the CFOs that I used to work with, one of his metrics for success, which I love that he counts is how many people he's able to help rise through the ranks to become CFO. Mm -hmm. And so in one of my features, I would love to count that. And so I love that you're paying this forward for anyone who is following this path. So thank you.
0: Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you like the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.